0: Hi, and welcome to Declarations. I'm Matt Mamoudi, and I'll be your host on this episode. Today, we're talking about the often paradoxical political moment in which we are in, the paradox of rallying populist support for removal from statutes, treaties, and agreements that acts as checks and balances on the state on behalf of citizens in these times of particular uncertainty. A recent development known as the Copenhagen Declaration is a manifestation of this, and we're joined by an expert guest to talk us through some of its implications. Today we are joined by Professor Bashak Kali. She is a professor of international law at the Hardy School of Governance. She's been a Council of Europe expert on the European Convention of Human Rights since 2002. She has had an illustrious career of advising members of the judiciary lawyers and NGOs on the European and comparative human rights law. She was also invited to take part as an expert at the high level meetings leading up to the Copenhagen Declaration. Bashak, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Declarations, for the invitation. Well, hi, everyone. I'm delighted to be on this uh, podcast. Uh, I'm a professor of international law and international human rights law at Hertie School of Governance in Berlin and also at Koch University in Istanbul. I've been working on the European Convention on Human Rights for... um, almost uh, two decades now and have acted as an expert on the European Convention on Human Rights to lawyers, judges, and prosecutors uh, across the Council of Europe member states. Currently, I also chair uh, an NGO that I find very important, uh, the European Implementation Network, uh, that works on championing the implementation of the judgments of the European Court of Human Rights.
0: Thank you so much for that. It's such a pleasure to have you on. So I think we want to start really easy and just just get the lay of the land on this. What is the Copenhagen Declaration?
1: Well, Copenhagen Declaration is uh, something that's not yet uh, actually in effect. It will be. There will be something called the Copenhagen Declaration in April. Uh, so a lot of conversation is currently on something called a draft uh, Copenhagen Declaration. Uh, but leaving that aside, that this is not yet uh, you know, something in public, and I think it will be public on the 12th or the 13th of April, this will be a declaration by the 47 Council of Europe member states uh, who are all subject to the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights, um, telling the world, uh, telling each other, and telling the court uh, what they think about the current European human rights system Uh, what uh, aspects of it that they support, uh, and what aspects of the system they would like to see more reforms. Uh, This is a a political declaration. Uh, It will be, um, you know, sort of supported by these 47 member states. We will see uh, how many are going to, uh, you know, whether people will be entering any objections. But it's usually not common. People usually sort of have a consensus document. uh, And this is what probably we will read in two weeks. Uh, the Council of Europe member states do it sort of every other year. Uh, uh, a very famous declaration uh, from back in the uh, from 2010 was the Brighton Declaration. We had a couple of other declarations, and the last one uh, was a Brussels Declaration. The reason that this is called the Copenhagen Declaration is because Denmark is currently the chairperson, or the chair state, I suppose, of the Council of Europe, which rotates on an alphabetical order. Uh, So that's what you can see. The Brussels declaration was in 2015, and now Denmark is the current uh, chair. And hence, they were very keen to do a new political declaration. So that's just a little bit info on why we have a name, Copenhagen, and a declaration in this document. But we can talk more about the substance of it, I suppose.
0: Great. Yeah, I think Daniel wants to jump in here. Uh, hi, I'm uh,
2: Daniel Ferguson. I'm an LLM student uh, here at, at Cambridge. Uh, I wondered if you could perhaps give us a bit of the background to this substance. So the, starting probably with the Brighton Declaration, there has been some controversy that, that, that states are essentially trying to sort of claw back or, or, or limit the power of the Court of Human Rights, uh, particularly with concerns arising from issues like immigration uh, or in the case of the Brighton Declaration, issues like uh, prisoner voting. Uh, and so on. So could you tell us a little bit about the substance and, and, and the political context in in which it's occurring?
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for this question. And you're right. Uh, so Copenhagen will be part of a series of declarations. And the the first sort of the, the famous one was the the Brighton Declaration. Clearly, that was hosted uh, by the United Kingdom when the UK was the chair of the Council of Europe. Now uh, there were lots of things about when, when these declarations came, and we could always see two kind of bigger issues in uh, Brighton in the Brighton Lake Declaration. We also see it in the Copenhagen Declaration. One issue uh, where a lot of there have been a lot of consensus uh, was that the European Court of Human Rights uh, faces a lot of uh, caseload. There are quite a large number of individuals from all over Council of Europe that knock on the doors of this court. And the court was unable to deal with uh, sort of the large number of flood of cases, so we see that kind of concern uh, about how the court should deal with the cases. What happens to these cases once the court decides on them, which we call the implementation problem? Uh, these are some of the ongoing uh, major concerns about uh, the system, uh, shared by many uh, in the in the Council of Europe community. But as you highlighted. A second sort of larger question, uh, since the United Kingdom uh, sort of led uh, with its own declaration about eight years from, uh, you know, eight years ago, was this idea that the European Court of Human Rights was maybe too uh, much, uh, you know, interfering a bit too much in the in the states and how they interpret and apply human rights. Uh, So a lot of uh, emphasis uh, sort of started to be placed on uh, the margin of appreciation of the states and this court. Uh, not into you know that you know there was a sort of a concern about the courts um, expansive interpretation of the convention that uh, second bigger question or concern is also very much present in the draft copenhagen declaration uh, where danes and denmark uh, not not all danes i suppose uh, but the ones who are in government uh, wanted to really kind of say that uh, you know we we should be able to decide on a certain number of issues At home, uh, we don't want too much uh, interference from uh, the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, and you would see that one of the issues where uh, sort of the so-called you know the Western or well-established democracies kind of persistently make these types of issues always come to immigration-related case law, uh, sort of the you know the non-refoulement principle. Uh, whether you could return a person to another country where they may face a risk of torture, uh, or whether uh, you would or you wouldn't allow for family reunification and so on. So I think this has this was a very big issue in Denmark in terms of its own domestic politics. Uh, and uh, a lot of conversation in Denmark kind of points to that, you know, the European Court of Human Rights becomes some sort of a target about concerns that are around immigration but there's a continuity and some of these uh, concerns uh, sort of were raised uh, maybe sort of in the in the previous declarations a little bit as well
2: yeah. could i just just maybe asking a sort of a follow up to to that question um i wondered if you could talk, talk to us about what the the effects of these declarations are on the court itself uh, i know that Uh, Professor Madsen from the University of Copenhagen published a study, I think, last year showing that the court is increasingly referring to wide margins of appreciation when it's dealing with case law under Article 8 and Article 3, which primarily relate to to immigration issues. So do you see these declarations as impacting the court and and are are they binding uh, on the court in any way?
1: Great question. So declarations are are not uh, legal documents. Uh, so this would also go for, uh, you know, what will become the Copenhagen Declaration at some point. Uh, they are political documents, but they're of, of course politicals of uh, also documents of political signalling. So it's a bit like the political masters are signalling to uh, the institutions, not just the courts, uh, but also other institutions within the Council of Europe about what they think. Uh, you, know, sh- you know, things should work, and so on and so forth. So uh, you're right that some research, uh, actually, of a Danish scholar, uh, uh, Mikael Metzen, uh, pointed to the fact that there's been, uh, you know, a significant sort of change or emphasis in the, in the case law of the European Court of Human Rights, uh, when states de- started demanding uh, what is called more uh, margin of appreciation or more subsidiarity Uh, principle being respected which what does it mean i mean if you know these things are uh, very well known to a legal audience but what it means is that the states uh, would like to decide on rights disputes at home uh, based on the sort of their own sort of considerations and they want the european court of human rights to step in if there is something exceptionally uh, disproportionate or an exceptionally gross or unreasonable situation so for everything else, they want uh, you know rights disputes to be resolved at home. Now, one of the things is, of course, uh, the general political climate uh, in in Western Europe uh, is is part of this. So it's not just a declaration, you know,' a, a single political document maybe that influences the courts, but there has been a lot of uh, sort of retreat uh, from uh, sort of putting your faith in a supranational institution for rights disputes in Europe in the past uh, few decades. And maybe this is also part of the story that, uh, you know, the the states are becoming a lot more insular and a lot more um, focused on domestic politics and domestic concerns and less concerned with a supranational human rights institution uh, giving sort of interpretations to all peoples in the Council of Europe. So that's sort of bigger story... is reflected in the Brighton Declaration. It's also reflected in how the court uh, responds to its case law. So you could draw your conclusions, right? You can say, well, Brighton led to this, but uh, Brighton is always also um, a consequence of a broader sort of an anti, uh, maybe cosmopolitan, and anti sort of a European human rights project. People are very keen to nationalize human rights at the moment in Europe. And I think this is sort of a bigger uh, picture where we see this sort of filtering through um, into many debates about human rights in Europe right now.
3: So on this topic of the tension between the national and the international, an important question raised by the Copenhagen Declaration is that of the relationship between democracy on a national level um, and human rights. So if we see human rights as universal, then they're not only for voting citizens, um, and the views of a system majority in any given nation might not be in support of protecting the rights of minorities um, and non-citizens who cannot vote are particularly vulnerable in this context. Um, however, as you're saying, the alternative to this can also be viewed as problematic because you have an independent court that can overrule the decisions of the nation state. And, and that's seen by many, especially in today's current political climate, as having excessive authority and little re- relevance to domestic concerns. So what are your thoughts on this? Do you think that, do you, would you say that uh, human rights, the question of how human rights are implemented should be decided upon outside of democratic deliberation on the national level?
1: Hmm. So, um, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's helpful uh, to, to kind of just go back and say that, you know, we, we still have some sort of a draft declaration and I From what I understand, there are going to be uh, a lot of maybe changes uh, to the Copenhagen Declaration because uh, some states within the Council of Europe may not agree with sort of the more uh, human rights nationalism uh, that the original draft prepared by Denmark uh, smells like or sounds like, if you will. So things might actually be changing a little bit between now and April, April the 13th. Now, you're absolutely right, there is a very important uh, sort of a, a tension, uh but also some sort of a, a you know, a relationship uh, between the, the national and the international when you start talking about protecting human rights. Uh, one uh, idea is obviously that, uh, you know, those who are closer to a human rights situation are maybe better able to understand that situation. Uh, And, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, our our communities would be able to make different decisions so there could be a reasonable disagreement between how certain rights are protected, say, in the UK um, versus, um, well, pick your country, Italy or what have you, because there will be some sort of local differences. And democracy is a way of actually airing and discussing these differences. Uh, the, the case law of the European Court of Human Rights, uh, you know, understands this. So, so the, the respect for democratic decision making is part of uh, a lot of these supranational judicial activity. It's not very blunt uh, in, in sort of saying, oh, you can't decide on everything. We have to tell you what to do and so on and so forth. So in a way, uh, you know, respect for healthy democ- democratic decision making is part of, of, of Strasbourg uh, case law. But of course, you know, if the democratic procedures have serious weaknesses, uh, you know, we can't be celebrating democracy if it's a, uh, you know, if it has serious deficiencies in getting voices heard or everyone participating in the system and so on and so forth. But another issue, and I think this is a difficult one uh, for for many uh, sort of more pro-nationalism or, you know, nationalist human rights uh, supporters, is that the the whole idea of human rights is is really about um, protecting uh, all kinds of different uh, minorities. And I don't just mean ethnic minorities. It could be a minority in a very different position against sort of hostile uh, majorities. So this is like a a very important safeguard. Uh, So one thing we say is that actually having these institutions uh, improves the health of democracies. So if you have an external institution that is able to look over your shoulders uh, and tell you that, you know, certain minorities are getting, uh, you know, getting really worse off in a society, this would actually improve uh, the the democracy and the decision-making back at home. So then the question is, uh, you know, whether you'd like to see these uh, international and national as always in some sort of a, a conflict and somebody has to choose, you know, between one or the other. Or whether you actually say, look, actually, you know, there's a relationship between these two and these supranational human rights institutions are ne- not necessarily bad for democracies and uh, as long as they also recognize uh, the value of democracy. All of these debates take also part in the case law of the European uh, Court of Human Rights. So it becomes really worrying uh, <clears throat> when politicians uh, point the finger at uh, Strasbourg uh, to the European Human Rights Court in the name of democracy. Uh, every time someone does that I think we have to be very careful about whether they're defending the right conception of democracy or uh, whether they're just using democracy uh, for its sort of dark, um, you know, shadow sister, um, say populism or, or some sort of a right-wing populism for example.
4: Hi, I'm Genevieve Riccaboni and I'm studying history here at Cambridge. Um, sort of along those same lines, I'm wondering about the relationship between interstate conflict and this declaration and the effect that this declaration could have on the legislating of those cases. Because from what I understand, one critique has been that the proposed Copenhagen decla- declaration would establish separate mechanisms for dealing with um, interstate conflict-related case- cases and cases that are more under a domestic purview. And considering that there is still quite a lot of conflict in some regions of Europe, um, I'm just wondering about what effects this declaration would have on you know cases that are still emerging um, in that context.:
1: Yeah so uh, let's let's just again go back to uh, this this draft document just for for a few minutes. So uh, I think one of the things that the Danish uh, chair uh, have done is sort of, they put a lot of things in this declaration, which is the first draft, uh, this is the what what we have in public at the moment as a document, and they've kind of included a lot of things in it, and it sort of uh, reminds you of, uh, you know, if you want to negotiate down, so you, you ask for lots of, uh, you know, probably, uh, you know, a very long list of things, most of which are actually, they don't really make sense even, maybe, and then you ask the other 47 to, to negotiate and to shorten that text. So I think this is what we're seeing in this draft uh, declaration. It's very long. It talks about all sorts of things. And as you say, including sort of how the court should deal with interstate cases or uh, interstate conflict cases, uh, amongst lots of other issues uh so one is my hunch is that uh the 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 declaration that will be adopted by forty seven member states will be a lot shorter and a lot more concise than the Danish draft because this it lets you know this this draft is obviously uh, a Danish draft, so it is not the declaration itself uh on on that point about you know uh, this references to interstate cases uh you know a lot of colleagues and experts were also very confused about this. Uh, because obviously, you know, human rights cases come from very different contexts, and, and to say that some of these cases um, are, you know, maybe shouldn't be discussed, and others should be discussed, would be a very deeply problematic move. Uh, precisely because what you know, human rights litigation is is really all about. My my hunch is that uh, we won't see any of these kinds of sentences or references in the in the declaration. This is what I'm thinking. So some of these uh, discussions, uh, hopefully, by you know after some sort of more healthy deliberation between these states, will be deleted. I would I would think that reference to interstate cases will be uh, will be one of those issues uh, that um, that wouldn't really make it there. Uh, having said this, of course, uh, there are different problems uh, when an individual uh, takes. Um, uh, a state to to court uh, for a very fine tuned sort of issue of interpretation, uh, versus when there's a very big conflict and there are lots of systemic and structural human rights violations in relation to a conflict. I mean, to say that okay, these are different kinds of issues of scale and importance. Uh, one could say that, but of course, uh, you know, any case that that raises human rights issues protected by the Convention of Human Rights uh, will have to be. Uh, sort of discussed and deliberated uh, by the court as its authoritative um, interpreter.
0: So full disclosure, I'm Danish, <laughs> and on behalf of Danes <laughs> of more human rights-friendly inclinations, I apologize for our questionable political choices as of late. Um, <laughs> <laughs> The draft declaration very much sounds like an expression of the current political climate in Denmark. As we know, it wasn't too long ago that Denmark objected to refugees crossing the German border into Denmark, making their way to Sweden. Um, We have an alleged integration minister who even called on refugees to deposit their personal jewelry to the state. And it's no surprise that, that Denmark has taken a shift to the right of the center at the very least, proclaiming refugees and migrants of color in particular as taxing on the welfare state. But I want to draw on the larger international moment where there appears to be a rejection of the international and supranational altogether. What do you think it takes to regenerate the kind of international institutionalism that emerged following the World War and the Cold War? What can we do to rally people around international watchdogs, as we've been talking about so far?
1: Oh, this is this is a quick question. I mean, of course, uh, you know there are also great people in Denmark. I'm sure are also debating the value of this declaration. So it's wonderful to you know have have you on board debating uh, the draft declaration as well. So that's good to that's good to hear. I know that there are lots of people in Denmark who will also have lots of concerns about this. Of course, Denmark is the first country that accepted the compulsory jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights, and brought in the. Uh, a very famous uh, interstate case against Turkey for torture practices. So Denmark, historically, uh, is actually a very impressive uh, state and, a, and an old supporter of supranational institutions. So having said this, maybe, uh, and also linking it into your introduction to the current political climate in Denmark, we see that there's a very close relationship with, between what happens domestically and what institutions are supported internationally, uh, and Denmark uh, for those of you who um, have been in the UK or were British, uh, might also feel a bit like a déjà vu because you know this kind of an anti-international or supranationalism has been in the UK for a very long time now, uh, and it uh, the, the root causes of this is also very domestic. So the sort of there there is this sort of a relationship between uh, you know which kind of uh, political groups uh, grab power, and, uh, you know, one of the things, it's very common to identify international, supranational institutions as part of of a larger uh, kind of a political problem. So what what can we do? Uh, You know, can we we convince um, sort of right-wing populists about the value of um, uh, insurance mechanisms? Uh, Human rights courts are insurance mechanisms for everyone, actually, you know, so... Anyone can actually knock on the door of a human rights court one day. Uh, you don't have to be a, a left-wing person, right? You can also be uh, across the spectrum uh, and your rights could be violated at any moment. So could we convince the the, the sort of the populist uh, politicians? Uh, I don't know. I'm not so sure about that uh, because uh, this is not something maybe they're, they're that in- interested and anti-internationalism seems to be uh, an interesting part of, um, of the European sort of right-wing populist uh, movements right now. Uh, but maybe uh, one still needs to engage and explain what kind of an insurance mechanism uh, the European Court of Human Rights is. There is a lot of misinformation about this court. Uh, it's a very weak institution. It cannot really order states to do anything. Uh, so I think one place to start is is to really... Uh, destroy all the myths about uh, an institution like the European Court of Human Rights and what it can and cannot do uh, and this could even convince uh, maybe some populist uh, politicians or supporters but on the other hand of course uh, for those uh, who may not uh, be sort of part of that kind of a political spectrum uh, you know it's, I think it's important to, to still continue to explain why we have these institutions and what they do uh, and also to continue to debate the health uh, and the future of these institutions. Uh, and I think these types of debates uh, have to continue, so we have to have a a, a very clear strategy against misinformation or disinformation about uh, what these institutions are doing for us, uh, but also to sort of continue uh, to sort of have, you know, larger conversations uh, about uh, human rights courts, uh, and sort of their future and so on and so forth. Uh, I think the Second World War, World War moment is is long gone now, and uh, a lot of people have also maybe forgotten why we created these institutions. So I, I also very much uh, value, uh, in particular, these de- debates are happening in Germany about history and going back uh, to you know the experiences of what happened in history and what kind of consequences. Uh, led to the the creation of supranational institutions. Uh, so it's it's a very multi I think very multi multidimensional debate. Um, I'm trained as a lawyer, but I don't think you 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 need only more lawyers to talk about these issues. I think we need to really open up the debate uh, to to historians and, and and political scientists and communication experts uh, to talk about what human rights supranationalism is and why it is important uh, for every one of us.
0: Yeah and you, and you mentioned communications here which is which is really important because I think part of the problem here is educational as well. I mean there was a time certainly in in denmark where at the university level whenever you walked into any global governance class even if it was taught by by a danish professor the sort of pride and progressiveness through which they they sort of emphasized supranational institutions was was remarkable it was definitely there and i wonder whether at, at, a, at a sort of younger level schools should be talking about these institutions and should be educating on these institutions when they teach classes like social science or or politics or 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 history even for that matter because this conversation has to start with the with the current generation right and it has to start at a at an at an age in which these things maybe Aren't necessarily seen as directly relevant to, to to daily life, and so you know when you grow up and and you you take a job in the science sector or or doing something completely different, you know you you may not realize how how these issues are still relevant to to anybody of any discipline and of any background.
1: Yeah, yeah, I would um, you know I, I would definitely I would definitely second that, and uh, you know after a while institutions sort of get uh, sort of. Different images and different labels, uh, and and I, and as I, and as I said, you know, if you if you have a more of a nationalist outlook, uh, international or, organizations would would look somewhat problematic. Uh, but we, we do need to talk about these things uh, on on a continuous basis, and and not just about the the maybe maybe the one of the parts uh, part of the story was, uh, obviously, the, this institution requires a lot of knowledge. Uh, from legal experts and you know lawyers and judges, a lot of people know about this. Uh, but I think we we also need to think about what what is the value or what's the purpose of these institutions. These have to be articulated uh, very clearly. I mean, just imagine that this is an institution for for anyone who find themselves in a very vulnerable uh, situation and who are you know subject uh, find themselves subject to hostile majority preferences. It would make sense for everyone to keep uh, a little bit of a, an insurance uh, of this kind in their lives. I don't see why would people kind of dispute if we were able to explain uh, what these institutions um, are, are really for and how important it is uh, that so that we have a collective understanding of, of human rights. Uh, these institutions help, uh, you know, build networks uh, of individuals uh, across Europe. Uh, we're able to speak uh, through a common language. Human rights gives us a language uh, to talk, so we don't need to talk about uh, you know, constitutional rights in one country or another. It brings us together. So there are lots of things uh, I would very much agree with you uh, that we, we need to make it a lot more accessible um, uh, to public, but also fight uh, the misinformation that has significantly increased um, and your podcast is from the UK, so I should note that the misinformation about this court uh, really started in the UK, uh, and it, uh, it did start uh, over a decade ago, and I, I also see that as a, as a really big, boring trend, and we have se- seen this uh, also in Denmark now a little bit,
0: yeah. So I want to pose this question to, to our audience. We've been getting some some voice messages as of late with some of your comments and critiques on on our episodes, and I want to ask you, what do you think about... Our human rights institutions internationally as insurance policies Um, please send us a voice message talk to us uh, share your thoughts on it and I want to throw this back at our panel as well what do do you guys think and and what do you think we can do to promote that idea
2: for me the the point that was raised about about myth-busting is is so important and I've been recently reading a fantastic book by by Connor Gearty called uh, on fantasy island which I would recommend for for anyone from the UK context and and one of the points that he highlights is that we seem to characterize the the ECHR in particular as this institution that's sort of uh, preventing us from doing all these things that we would otherwise be able to do. But then, when you actually challenge someone to name a judgment of the court that they're unhappy with, or, or, or a judgment that they think is is unreasonable, they'll they'll never have an answer on hand. And, and when you when you actually begin to study what the court does and and, and what it stands for, it it's done so many incredible things you know uh we 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 forget that for example the right to be to be gay in ireland came through the european court of human rights or, or, or the right of gay soldiers to join the army in the uk came through the european court of human rights so many free speech and freedom of religion things came through this court where our own domestic institutions were were lacking and i think that we really need to be highlighting the positives of the court to to British people, to Danes, to to, to European citizens, and, and really countering that narrative of, of negativity by by showing just how much it has achieved and just how much domestic systems and, and the supranational system complement each other to ensure a really robust protection of human
3: rights. So myth busting is is clearly really important, but I think also another question we need to ask is why do people find certain myths appealing? So I think to understand that question, well the answer to that question from an academic perspective maybe needs more in-depth research um and for politicians more more dialogue with different parts of the constituency. Um, so myth busting is is one angle to take, but I think also in order to to do that effectively, you need to see why why people are holding on to certain ideas.
4: I think from a historical perspective, there is also sort of interlocking ideas of collective accountability and the idea that you know individual states do bad things and make wrong decisions and that very frequently they engage with other states and with populations within their states in an incredibly negative way for human rights and abuse human rights but also the idea of collective responsibility that often problems are not actually just domestically rooted, but especially as we see increasing migration, people moving around the world and globalization, You know, we all actually share in the problems that are happening in other states, and we sort of have a collective responsibility to address those because they often aren't just the product of domestic situations. Um, so I think those are both really important, and there's The whole 20th 20th century is full of examples of, you know, of bad things that have been the product of um, both of global situations.
2: And of course, on that point of history, it's really important to remember that it was, of course, the UK who had the biggest part in drafting the European Convention on Human Rights. So this is a British project that was promoting the value of human rights. and, And somehow now we seem to cast it as an enemy of our of our own British values. But this is this should be. Uh, that the human rights project should be very much bound up uh, within our within our national identity and our and our national values.
0: Basheik, if you have any parting thoughts or sort of ideas um, that you want our audience to walk away with from this episode,
1: well, I really enjoyed uh, the, the the comments. I have to say, uh, very much. Uh, maybe I, I go back to this um, the point about collective responsibility uh you know one obviously one way of explaining uh, to people in Ireland right why this convention and court is important is to to obviously highlight uh, some of the most important cases about Ireland like the one that you highlighted about Norris or uh, in Northern Ireland uh, which is uh, the the, the Dudgeon case about sexual orientation and criminalization of homosexuality and so on so for you can do that sort of for every country uh, definitely Uh, And I think the second aspect of of this court uh, is really about solidarity. Uh, So the the court uh, is able to exist because every member state of the Council of Europe is part of it. You cannot really have a court for a couple of states. Uh, So you can't have a court and say, oh, these countries are are not very good. Let's have a court for them. Uh, That kind of an idea won't work. And why would the human rights violating states sign up to a court? Uh, which is just for them, uh, so this is a bigger picture uh, question that we also debated a lot in Denmark uh, that people have to understand that the court helps uh, every single uh, polity to improve the quality of their democracy and protection of rights in their countries, but it is a huge value to have a court for everyone uh, and this is this allows for everyone to be in so you you still have Turkey in and Russia in and uh, you know, Ukraine and and Georgia in and, and the UK. And this is a hugely important uh, value that everyone is subject uh to the same court. Uh, so this this value is something that I would also uh, underline. And this is uh, an unusually successful uh, sort of a solidarity uh, institutionalization that we have managed uh, to set up, and it has survived. Uh, for, uh, you know, for almost now, in terms of the case law, nearly 60 decades. I would like it to continue, and uh, I really appreciate that you seem to be also um, supporting this, um, this idea. But yeah, this, the, the human rights is about what we get from it, but it's also about solidarity uh, with others in a, in a single institution.
0: Thank you so much to Professor Vashak Kali for joining us today on this episode of Declarations. Thank you, guys. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. you. Thanks to our panelists also for stepping in, despite the fact that term is over at this point. We will still be releasing episodes over the next weeks to come, so please tune in. You can find us on Anchor or Facebook, uh, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, everywhere where you go for your social media and for your podcast fix. So until next time, thank you for joining us at declarations.